Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 19. The Rummans from Rome. Stan trotted briskly up the street with yours truly in his wake, thinking wistfully of tea and cake. Important business, I said. Where are you taking me? Islington. Islington? What's in Islington? What there was in Islington, it emerged when we arrived an hour or so later, was a small warehouse at the end of a narrow cobbled alley running along the side of a pub. The door was opened, eventually, to Stan's knocking, by a stocky little fellow with discoloured teeth, who blinked at us as though he hadn't seen daylight for some weeks. "'Good morning, Mr. Goodger?' Stan said. "'Who wants to know?' this Goodger replied, peering at us with his piggy eyes. "'I am Mr. Jefferson, Mr. Stanley Jefferson, and this is my colleague, Mr. Dando. You should have received a communication from Mr. Gordon Jefferson, alerting you to our visit.' "'Well, maybe I have, maybe I haven't.' Goodger said, with an air of gnomic suspicion. We looked at one another without saying anything further, until I could stand it no longer. "'Well, which is it? Have you or haven't you?' I said. "'I have,' this creature conceded. "'So, can we come in?' Goodger peered at us a little longer, until he finally seemed to realise that this was not going to result in us paying him any kind of a tip, and he stepped back inside. Stan and I followed into the building, which was essentially a cavernous single room, piled high with furniture and bric-a-brac. What light there was streamed in diagonally through skylights, and there was a good deal of dust suspended in those sunbeams. The whole place had that sort of musty, damp but not actually damp odour that all theatrical costumes seem able to acquire after only a night or two. It was the smell of old show business. We squeezed in through a gap which was just about wide enough for us to pass one at a time between a pile of dining tables and chairs on the one side and what looked like the furnishings for some kind of harem on the other. "'What is this place?' I asked Stan. "'It's a storehouse for various West End theatres, stuff from old productions. "'They keep it here in case it can be used again.' "'Goodger coughed and spat. "'What was it you gents were looking for?' he inquired. "'We shall know it when we see it, Mr Goodger,' Stan replied, "'clambering over a couple of interlocked chaise long "'to see what lurked in the deeper recesses of this Aladdin's cave.' "'I'll leave you to it, then.' The watchman grumbled and waddled over to a corner in which he had installed the most comfortable of the many available chairs for his own personal use. "'What are we looking for?' I asked. "'Something. Anything that will give us a brainwave.' Stan opened a trunk, peered inside, and then moved on. "'What sort of a brainwave?' "'Well, I feel that our abilities, such as they are, lie in scenarios. Singing? Well, if required. Dancing? At a pinch. Telling stories? Possibly.' But I'd much rather come up with a scenario, a sketch. Then we can use the skills we have honed with Carno, action and interaction, to and fro, give and take and double take. What do you say? I'm with you, my boy, I cried, with an enthusiasm fuelled by the raw relief that I mightn't have to go back to the corner for a while. What about this? I pointed out a sort of silk palanquin. 
There was a little pile of curved wooden scimitars on top of the cushions, and an assortment of brightly coloured baggy pantaloons. Hmm, Stan mused. Possibly. The Terrible Turks, we could be something like that. That's the name of the wrestler in Mummingbirds, of course, I reminded him. Yes, true. Perhaps not, then. Let's keep looking. Stan burrowed further into the warehouse, sliding some baskets aside, while I swished a scimitar from side to side. All of a sudden he let out a gleeful shout. "'Hey, what about this lot?' I hurried over and saw that he was holding up what looked like a Roman soldier's helmet with a maroon-coloured plume on the top, and in the other hand a gold-painted breastplate. "'Look!' he cried, his eyes bright. "'We can be gladiators. I haven't seen that before, have you?' I had to admit I hadn't. "'Romans,' I said, trying it out. "'Rum Romans,' Stan said with a grin. "'The Rum Romans! The Rummans! The Rummans from Rome!' I finished, and we both knew that was it. "'Let's see what else we can use,' Stan said, and we set to burrowing into the shadows for more bric-a-brac from the same production, whatever that had been. Eventually we made our way back to the exit and apprised Mr. Goodger of our requirements. The Roman helmets, two. The gladiator breastplates, two. Tunics, Roman, two. Sandals, Roman, two pair. Short broadswords, Roman style, two. Freestanding ornate columns, Roman style, two. A chariot, small, Roman, for one passenger, a burlesque horse costume, possibly not from the same enterprise as the rest of the items, and a moth-eaten lion skin, which may have been used as a rug in some hunting lodge scene. As we'd discovered and set aside all these things, the sketch we would eventually perform had sparked a life there in the dusty darkness. We marched around, planning this effect and that routine, until we could hardly wait to get the props home and start work properly. The stolid Mr. Goodger wasted no time taking the wind out of our sails, however. He listened to us describing what we needed to take, and he sucked his teeth dubiously. "'The Roman stuff,' he said, shaking his head. "'That's not just any old junk, you know. That's from Mr. Shaw's Caesar and Cleopatra at the Savoy back in Alt Seven, played by Mr. Johnston Forbes Robertson and his lovely wife, Gertrude Elliot. It was a great success. Could be revived at any time.' "'Oh,' Stan said, disappointment showing clearly on his face. "'Really?' "'Yes, oh yes,' Goodger said sorrowfully. "'I couldn't possibly let those go.' Stan slumped, but something in Goodger's seedy, beady little eyes made me suspect that that might not quite be that. "'You couldn't let them go,' I said. "'No, sirs, not possibly. "'For less than...' Goodger blinked up at me, sucking at his teeth, and said, Five pans.' I whistled. I was expecting the old chiseler to try it on, but that was way out of our reach. Well, so much for that, I was thinking, but then Stan stepped forward. I'll take care of this, he murmured. Please add it to the account of Mr Gordon Jefferson at the New Prince's Theatre, he said to the old watchman in a commanding tone, and that includes delivery, of course, at your earliest opportunity. I boggled at him. Gooja grumbled and fumbled around for a stub of pencil to make a note of this, with a surly grumpiness that made me suspect that he'd been really hoping for a cash transaction that he wouldn't have had to put in his books. Outside, I grabbed Stan by the sleeve. "'Your brother is paying for this,' I said. Stan shrugged with a rather mischievous smile. "'You mean he doesn't know he's paying for it?' "'Well, not yet. By the time he finds out, we'll be able to pay him back, won't we?' "'How? Why, from the proceeds of our new sketch, of course.' The Rummans from Rome! I was a little anxious about the debt we now owed Stan's brother Gordon, even if the man himself didn't know it. 
and Stan taking charge of our affairs was a source of further trepidation, for I'd hardly ever known anyone less well-suited to looking after financial matters. Week after week on tour, he'd surrendered his wages to the boxcar poker circle and had to scrounge cents for food and drink. I felt a nagging certainty that the watchman would have taken a lot less money for all those props and costumes. He'd struck me as a man preparing to haggle, but then Stan had stepped in with his grand gesture, which probably cost us a couple of quid we could ill afford. However, I was relieved to be doing something at last, and put that concern to the back of my mind as our rehearsals began in a bare room in the as-yet-unfinished Prince's Theatre. I wondered whether Stan's brother Gordon knew anything about that either, but Stan was able to breeze confidently past the stage doorman, and as long as we were prepared to ignore the noise of the building work, we could get on with things. As the rummons from Rome took shape, we made some modifications to our props. We chopped the floor out of the chariot. Well, we were never really going to give it back to Mr Johnston, Forbes, Robertson, were we? And we cut a trick compartment into one of the columns. Stan was a veritable sparking powerhouse of invention, and the two of us laughed and laughed that whole time up at the Prince's. My fondest memory of that period is of the two of us falling on the floor, helpless with mirth at some new piece of slapstick business, our clothes covered in plaster dust and bits of brick. Edith Carno helped out by making papier-mâché facsimiles of my head, a skill she fondly remembered from a show of her husband's back in the day, and Leslie, Freddy's much younger brother, delighted in splattering every inch of their kitchen with paste. In order to carry off the effect we had in mind, and I shall come to that in just a moment, I was required to wear particularly heavy makeup and a false beard, but it was worth it. I was glad to see how much Edith enjoyed being involved, as I felt it was some small recompense for her kindness in putting me up. I kept trying to promise to pay her for board and lodging, but she insisted on waiting until I was solvent, bless her. "'It's our pleasure to have you here,' she said, "'especially considering what we owe you, Leslie and I.' The debt to which she alluded was from the time when Charlie and I were climbing neck and neck up the Carno ladder, vying for a coveted number one spot. The governor let me know that the job would be mine if only I would help him with a little problem.' He was living in sin with an athletic Amazon of a chorus girl called Maria, who he was passing off as Mrs. Carno, but in point of fact he was still married to Edith, who was refusing to divorce him. Their marriage had been a tempestuous one. It had produced two children, Freddie, my friend and sometime roommate, and Leslie, whose room I currently occupied. There had been others in between, at least half a dozen, but none had lived beyond young infancy, and on each sad occasion, Carno had forced Edith straight back to work immediately without any consideration for her feelings. Increasingly, he had become violent with her, beating her and openly taunting her with his many mistresses. She bore a half-moon scar on her cheek that had come from a vicious stamp of his shiny heel. Finally, her friends, who included Charlie and Clara Bell, and Alf Reeves, and Mary Lloyd too, had intervened and rescued her, setting her and Leslie up here in Streatham, where they could keep a close eye on them. Despite all this, she still loved the old monster, and slept every night on pillows with Fred and Edith embroidered upon them. She would never agree to divorce him, never. It went against everything she was. So Carno was stuck, unable to marry again, and resentful of his obligation to provide for her and his sons. So he'd asked me to compromise her and provide evidence he could use to get his divorce, an unpleasant proposal that I angrily rejected. But I considered it. Oh, yes, I did, to my secret shame. My anger was fuelled, truth to tell, by the nasty suspicion that the governor was employing his famous casting couch to audition Tilly, and it turned out she was much too canny to let him get away with that. In any event, I had been fated as a kind of hero by Edith and her friends, deservedly or not, and was still, it seemed, reaping the benefit. 
Now, for the Romans from Rome, we needed someone to join us to double as a horse's backside and a lion, and we hooked up with a young fellow by the name of Ted Leo, an oddly appropriate name given what we were asking to do, George Horseass was unavailable, down at the corner. Ted was a lugubrious South London chancer who had just been playing a supporting part in Charles Baldwin's Waxworks. What did you have to do? I asked. Ted shrugged. Waxwork, wasn't I? Just had to stand there. Got knocked over at one point, but forbidden to put my arms out to break me fall. It was bloody murder. Then I go along to see agents, and they've all seen the show. Didn't even realise the waxworks was real people. I mean, what's the bloody point of it all, eh? He fulfilled our requirements well enough, but he would keep grumbling about how nobody could see his face. We had one booking at the Royal Victoria Hall, but were confident that once people knew about the Rummans, then more would follow. When the day came, it suddenly dawned on us, almost at the last possible minute, that our funds were so depleted that we would not be able to get all our props and bits and pieces over to the hall by van. Thanks to some shameless begging, we were able to borrow a pushcart from the greengrocer around the corner, and we loaded it up and galloped through the streets of Soho and over Waterloo Bridge to Lambeth, with hordes of children hooting at us and our strange-looking load. Outside the theatre we paused for breath, sweating like the pair of overworked pack mules we were, and I glanced at the bill poster on the wall. "'Hey!' I rasped. "'We're not on there. What's happened?' "'Yes, we are,' Stan wheezed. "'There, look, that's us. The Bartow Brothers.' "'Bartow Brothers? When when did we become the Bartow Brothers?' "'Just thought... "'Phew!' Stan said, leaning heavily against the side of our cart." Just thought we'd best not use our own names, just in case. Just in case what? Just in case we stink, Stan grinned. That's good thinking, I said after a moment's consideration, patting him on the back. Our third member was waiting anxiously just inside the stage door. Ah, Mr Bartow, Ted said when he saw us, and you must be Mr Bartow. Pleased to meet you. The name's Bartow. A short while later, the three of us silently erected the twin columns alongside a little platform, listening to a jaunty Costa singer getting the bird on the other side of the curtain. Most of the acts we'd seen so far had been greeted with derision from the crowd, which was beginning to get a bit too big for its boots, in my opinion. Stan and I shared an apprehensive look, and I tried to quieten the butterflies in my stomach by pressing my hands against my abdomen. That never works, by the way, as we retreated into the wings. All of a sudden the curtain went up, without the customary warning ripple of applause for the unfortunate fellow preceding us, and the rummans from Rome was underway. Stan and Ted, as the burlesque horse, pulled the chariot onto the stage and up to the platform, with me as a self-important and pompous Roman dignitary riding inside, although not actually riding, as we'd removed the floor so that I could walk. I disembarked, as it were, and called for my junior colleague. Barmicus, I cried. He was Barmicus. I was silly cuss. I looked around in all directions, as did the audience. Suddenly, thanks to a brilliant little trick he'd devised himself and executed perfectly, Stan appeared alongside the horse's head in his full Roman gladiator costume. He had been the front of the horse, and the way he held the head up it appeared to be exactly as it had been moments before, and yet now it was empty. The audience actually gasped. It was so well done. Even I, who knew it was coming, took half a step back. Then Ted Leo reached his arms forward inside the horse suit and took over, pulling the chariot off towards the wings. Now the horse did seem somewhat floppier. "'What on earth is that?' I said, pointing at this strange sight. "'That is Brutus, sir, the only filleted horse in existence,' said Stan, with his trademark beaming grin. 
Leo managed then to make it appear that the horse's boneless front legs were dancing, and we were off. The place was roaring. I unfurled a parchment then with great pomp and ceremony, saying, "'Gather round!' Stan, seeing that there was only himself there, began to gather round, marching in dumb little circles. My job was to stop this nonsense with a look, but Stan was getting such a good response for his daft little march that he just kept going, and my look built and built into a sort of long-suffering contempt. The power was with me then, that eerie control that takes over when things are ticking along just right for a comic on stage. I knew just how long to hold one expression before developing it into the next, when to move, when to do nothing, when the audience's attention was on me, when it was on Stan, felt it instinctively all the way to my finger ends. Stan was feeling it too, I could tell. He judged to perfection how long the gathering round would sustain, and finally noticed me staring furiously at him. His face turned sheepish, then bewildered, and then he tried to win me over with another grin. The audience lapped it up. My pompous dignitary then whacked the gladiator on the head with the parchment, knocking off his helmet. Stan picked up his battle-axe and chased me around the stage, a classic bit of pantomime incorporating various swings and misses, until I took refuge behind one of the columns, inside the thing, in fact. Stan prowled around, unable to find me, until I tentatively poked my head out from behind the column. With a great roar and a legs akimbo leap off the platform, Stan buried the axe deep into my head, which was the papier-mâché dummy head, of course. This horrific violence brought the house down naturally. I pulled the prop head back inside the column and emerged with a trick axe stuck to my real head and blood dripping liberally down my white tunic. More gales of laughter... Now Stan was repentant and tried to help his victim. With much toing and froing, he managed to tease the axe out of my skull, and then he set to bandaging the wound, walking round and round in circles once again. Once I was completely covered, he puzzled over how to attach the loose end. Having no tape or string, he very carefully stuck the bandage in place by tapping a nail into my head. The funniest thing we agreed was for me not to complain about this until the deed was done, and then to feel with my hands until I found the nail, whereupon I would become outraged and begin to chase him, seeking retribution. By this time, all our business was working so well, we wanted the act to go on for hours, but all too soon the finale was upon us. The two scrapping Romans were at one another's throats, seemingly battling to the death, when suddenly, with a great roar, a terrifying lion leapt onto the stage. Ted Leo in the moth-eaten old lion-skin rug it was, of course, but he didn't stand still long enough for the audience to inspect him too closely. The lion chases both back and forth, with the audience particularly enjoying Stan's childlike screams of terror and his cross-legged leaps into the air. Finally, the two rummans set their differences aside and teamed up to dispatch the creature. Stan's gladiator found a banana in his belt, and it slowly dawned upon him that the lion wanted to eat this rather than either of us. He tempted the lion this way and that with the fruit, teasing its big head from side to side like a stage hypnotist with a pocket watch, finally leading the fearsome beast into a position where my Roman dignitary could brain it with the pommel of a sword. Lastly, we picked Leo up bodily, slung him over our shoulders, which produced a muted oof from inside the lion head, and marched off stage to thunderous applause. Well, we'd had some good nights with the Carnot companies for sure, but nothing to match this, and this was all our own work, not a show we'd inherited from previous companies and slotted into like cogs into a slickly oiled machine. Ted and I were walking on air, and good old Stan was beaming all over his chops. A hit! he cried, a massive, palpable, unmistakable, jaw-dropping, death-defying hit. The three of us embraced, and Stan shouted, Champagne! 
it seemed to us then, as we strolled across Waterloo Bridge towards Covent Garden in search of fizz, too excited to ride any kind of conveyance, that there was nothing we couldn't achieve. Surely this was the start of something. Something big. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chapter 20. Hard-boiled eggs and nuts. Our high hopes were misplaced, sadly. We discovered the hard way that Dame Show can be a fickle mistress, and those who pick up her skirts do so at their peril. It turned out neither of us was particularly good at pushing ourselves, or our act, in the way it needed pushing. We would go and see bookers, or sometimes theatre managers, and when they said, come back and see us when you've worked it in, we would take them at their word, and obligingly take ourselves from the premises, rather than badgering them to give us a go. What we needed was an agent working for us, but every time we went to visit one they would say their books were crammed, and we would say our polite thanks and leave, rather than insisting that we were better than anything they had. I think both of us assumed that simply being hysterically bloody funny would be enough, and that everything else would naturally follow from that. That was certainly truer within the confines of the Carnot organisation than it turned out to be in the outside world, where other qualities were required to succeed, dogged determination and a self-belief bordering on mental instability that we did not quite possess in sufficient quantities. There were bookings for the Romans from Rome after our triumph at the Royal Victoria Hall, but they were small ones and few and far between, odd nights here and there, when we needed whole weeks to survive, and we were all obliged to keep our eyes peeled and our ears to the ground in case something else came along. One night we played the Romans from Rome in Brixton, Carno country, and loaded the props onto a handcart afterwards. The show had gone well, but we were pretty fed up as there were no more bookings on the horizon. Ted Leo and I were fed up anyway. Stan was as relentlessly cheerful as ever. "'Listen, lads,' he said, once we were settled in the pub. "'I got talking to a fellow earlier who's taking our comedy company to Rotterdam. "'Anyway, he was short, and it sounded like it was too good a chance to miss, "'so I signed us up. Should tide us over, eh? "'We leave on Friday.' Ted and I were stunned. "'What?' I said. "'To play the Rummans, you mean?' "'No,' Stan said. "'The show is called Fun on the Tyrrell. <laughs> "'The best news is we're staying in a place with a restaurant and a bar "'and we get to run up a tab there on the promoters like.' "'Sounds pretty sweet if you ask me,' Ted said. "'Cheers, Stan.' "'And what do we have to do?' I asked. "'Stan shrugged. "'Dunno,' he said. "'We'll find out when we get there, I suppose.' "'Rotterdam was known to be a great town for comedy. 
We'd heard tales of the warmth of the audiences at the Circus Varieté, where we were due to play, and English pantomime always played well in the Low Countries. We were called the Eight Comics. I asked our leader, a man called Tubby Reed, whose wife, daughter, brother and sister-in-law made up the rest of the troupe, what he'd have done if he hadn't bumped into Stan. He paused midway through a large pie. Well then, I guess we'd have been the Five Comics, wouldn't we? We were quartered in the offices of the agents who had booked us, an outfit by the name of Pilcher and Decker. These rooms were above a pub, no less, and we were indeed invited to run up a tab on the company, so all our food and drink needs were amply supplied. I need hardly say how thrilling this was to hardened musical artists used to the traditional doorstep of bread with jam, if you were lucky, and cup of tea, which was the order of catering traditionally provided by English theatrical landladies. Tubby Reed tucked in with particular gusto, and you could readily believe that this free food and drink arrangement was the main inspiration for setting up the eight comics in the first place. As for fun on the Tyrrell, well, it was an alpine oddity featuring a good deal of nonsense involving milkmaids and cowbells, as you might have expected, but the finale boggled the minds of those of us performing it, so goodness knows what it did to the audiences. We were all on stilts, all eight of us, but it wasn't just ordinary stilt walking. Oh no, it wasn't even the more difficult version where the stilts are stuck up your overlong trouser legs and you can't use your hands. It was stilt walking with the whole upper half of your body encased inside a giant plaster egg. To be honest, we were all relieved when heavy rain caused the first night to be cancelled. The circus variété had a wooden roof, you see, and the drumming of the torrential downpour drowned out the acts on stage, making the whole thing impossible. We got on with sampling the many varieties of Dutch beer on tap and practised our stilt-walking, not particularly compatible pursuits, by the way. It rained hard again the next evening, and the grey storm clouds continued to roll in from the North Sea for the rest of the week, leading to cancellation after cancellation. We were content, however, to enjoy the hospitality of Messrs Pilcher and Decker. Tubby Reed was eating like a king, and the rest of his family were not exactly abstainers. Much more of this, we're going to have to start calling ourselves the Nine Comics, Stan said under his breath one lunchtime. Old Tubby's eating for two. At the weekend, Tubby gathered us together in the bar, where we'd already spent most of the week. I've had word from De Heer Decker, he said, a handwritten note quivering in his fat paw. Our line of credit here at the pub, here he made a noise a little like a sob, will not be extended any further. His wife and daughter gasped, and all of us glowered at Tubby as he left the room, frankly suspecting that he was responsible for eating us out of a good thing. Well, Ted said, I'm going to need to get paid then, pretty quick smart. Ah, said Stan, looking sheepish suddenly. What? Um, well, you see, the agreement is, no play... No pay. What? Ted and I both shouted together. You signed us up to a no-play, no-pay deal? Well, I didn't think it was possible not to... um, play. Ted spat angrily on the floor and cursed. It wasn't just that, of course, Stan said. There was the free food to take into account, of course, and... He stopped short. And? I prodded. You see, it was such a sure thing that Tubby suggested that I should buy a share of the production. So we're not just on the straight no-play-no-pay deal, we're also on a door split. But there's nothing to split, Ted said, exasperated. So we're on a fat share of sweet bugger all, I said, with no pay and no food and drink. Mmm, Stan agreed. He was looking so forlorn that I had a sudden suspicion that even that was not the whole story. Stan, I said. How did you buy a share of the production? Aren't we broke? 
Well, yes, but there was our take from the last couple of Rummen's performances. Ted let out a loud groan at this. And I... I... Hocked the chariot and the costumes and the columns, not the lion skin, they wouldn't give me anything for that, but I got nearly two pounds for the lot. Two pounds, but we paid five. Well, Gordon did, technically. I know, I know he did, and we still have to pay him back, don't we? I scratched my head vigorously, trying to comprehend the size of the hole Stan had dug for us. So you got nearly two pounds, Stan nodded, which you invested on our behalf in this misbegotten debacle. Along with our float, remember, Ted put in. So how much altogether? Three pounds, Stan said. It was a pound apiece, you see. Ted put his head in his hands, and I felt a furious rage building up. Who the hell told you to do that? I yelled. I thought it was a good idea. You thought? Why didn't you ask me first before you did something so damn stupid? We're in this together, aren't we? I didn't want to miss the chance. The chance to be taken for a mug, you mean? Because it's a bloody dream job, this, isn't it? We're stranded in a foreign country, waiting for the rain to stop so we can strut about on stilts dressed as giant bloody eggs, and apparently we've paid every single bloody penny we own for the privilege. Bloody well done, mate. Thank Christ we have you looking out for us. There's no need to be like that, Stan said, looking pretty glum. Ah! I yelled and kicked a chair, which skittered noisily across the floor and crashed into the far wall. I couldn't even look at Stan then, or Stan to stay in the same room as him, so I stormed out into the street. By the middle of the following week, the weather was worse than ever, and ridiculously, the run was cancelled entirely, all because of a wooden roof. Had they never noticed this problem before? Tubby managed to get us a late booking in Liège, and we were obliged to go along, as it was the only way we would have even a remote chance to get any of our money back. Liège was a garrison town, which straddled the Meuse River just a few short miles from the German border. It was surrounded by twelve forts, six on each bank. The intention was that this ring of fortifications should form a formidable obstacle to any potential German army advance towards France, or indeed any French advance towards Germany, much less likely. Blue-clad infantrymen were everywhere, some marching in formation down the street, others off-duty wandering in and out of bars or shops. It gave the place a sense of foreboding, as though it was in a constant state of readiness for who knew what disaster just around the corner. Everyone there seemed acutely aware that if Germany were ever going to make a move on France, then this was the way they would most likely come. We lugged our ridiculous egg costumes from the station to the theatre, which at least seemed to have a relatively soundproof roof on top of it, trying to ignore the hunger pangs in our bellies. If we could have knocked the top off one of the eggs with a giant teaspoon and all dived in, I think we would have done it. The eight comics finally got to perform fun on the Tyrrell. We reached the inexplicable finale somehow, and one by one the giant plaster eggs on stilts made their entrances and lined up. It was pretty hot inside those stupid costumes, and none of us had had a meal for what seemed like days. All of a sudden, I, as Egg on Stilts number three, heard a low moaning coming from Egg on Stilts number four, which contained Stan. Through my sadly inadequate eye-holes, I caught a brief glimpse of the egg next to me wobbling out of position, and then Stan fainted. He fell against me and bounced away to slump against the egg on the other side, which contained Ted Leo. He fell against Sissy Reed, who knocked over her daughter. Meanwhile, I fell against Jim Reed, and he brought down old Tubby at the end with a mighty crash, which smashed his egg, Humpty Dumpty style. And there are never any king's horses or king's men around when you need them, are there? Down we went, like eggy dominoes, and all of us ended up on our backs on the stage, rolling around with our stilted legs kicking pointlessly in the air, unable to right ourselves. It must have looked pretty funny, but was there any laughter? 
There was a heavy preponderance here, too, of the blue-jacketed soldiery from the garrisons, and perhaps they just weren't in the mood. I strained my ears to hear, but there was nothing, nothing but the echo of my own breathing inside the plaster coffin of my comedy career, until, after a moment, there was the unmistakable sound of a boo. The sound grew and multiplied until it became full-scale jeering, and then, mercifully, the curtain came down. The run was cancelled even before we unbuckled our stilts. The eggs had had their chips. We were stranded in Belgium until Tubby Reed managed to get one of his other backers, not Stan, the man was actually a retired Scotland Yard detective with a similar nose for a smart investment, to stump up a little cash for our fares home. By the time we made it back to London, Ted and I were not speaking to Stan and were barely communicating with one another either. We went our separate ways without making any kind of an arrangement to meet up again and I headed down to Edith Carnot's house in Streatham to lick my wounds and try to work out what the hell to do next. There seemed nothing for it but to loaf around at Poverty Corner once again, hoping for something to turn up, and so that's what I did. At least I had a bed for the night, thanks to Edith's benevolence, and she was kind enough to share her evening meals with me. "'You'll get a chance soon,' she'd say, "'and you can pay me something then.' One afternoon, I'd been at the corner for hours on end, without even the hint of an opportunity coming by. I'd had enough, and went for a walk, wandering over Waterloo Bridge, then along the Strand, past a couple of steakhouses that set my tummy rumbling, and up into Trafalgar Square. I strolled across the front of the National Gallery, and lingered by a little knot of pavement artists, who were scribbling away on the stone slabs with little nubs of coloured chalk, their caps alongside them on the ground. I saw a variety of subjects, scenes of London, Big Ben and Nelson's Column, both of which could actually be seen, large as life, simply by turning round, and famous people including Mr Asquith, Mr Lloyd George and the young Prince of Wales dressed as a midshipman, depicted with varying success. A portrait of the arrest of Mrs Pankhurst was bringing one enterprising fellow a regular tinkle of coins from passing ladies. One or two chaps were working away at renditions of famous artworks that resided within the gallery behind them, and I stopped to watch one of these, a young fellow who was putting what looked like the finishing touches to the sky on a pretty impressive paving stone reproduction of Turner's Fighting Temeraire. "'Drop a penny in me cap, sir, if you like what you see,' he said after a little while without looking up. "'I like it very much,' I said, "'but I'm afraid I haven't a penny to my name.' The artist grunted and continued shading the swirling orange clouds. For some reason, it was important to me to let the man know that I was genuinely unable to give him anything for his handiwork. "'I mean it,' I said, pulling my empty pockets inside out. "'I'm a comedian, and I've just come from the corner. There's nothing doing again today.' The artist stopped and looked up at me for a moment as if judging my honesty. I shrugged, gave him a regretful smile. "'You hungry?' he said then, which surprised me a little. "'I've not eaten all day,' I said. "'All right, tell you what. You sit here and mind my pictures for a few minutes, and I'll nip round the corners of the ABC and bring us a cup of tea and a currant bun. Deal? Deal, I agreed readily, and we switched places. Just pretend to shade in the sky a bit now and then. Don't change nothing, the man said as he stood slowly, flexing his aching knees before trotting off. He was gone a few minutes and then returned with two steaming cups and a couple of buns on a plate. You can take the china back for me when we're done, all right? Thank you, I said gratefully, taking a bite. I'm Arthur. Donald, the artist said. Don't mention it. You've done me a good turn. If I leave all this unattended, one of those buggers will swipe my pitch. He nodded over towards some vagrants loafing in the square a little way off. Then it's fisticuffs to get it back. I was dying for a cuppa and all. 
I looked down at the chalk temeraire, cunningly rendered with a few white strokes for the masts, and the dark little tugboat alongside. How long did this take you? I said. Oh, that? I've got that one off. I can do the ships in a few minutes now, and I spend the rest of the day pretending to be finishing the sky. Now Simon over there, he said, indicating a skeletal youth about twenty feet away, he studied at the Royal Academy, and every day he attempts to recreate Raphael's Aldebrandini Madonna. It takes him most of the day, and it breaks his heart to leave it. Then the street cleaners hose it away, and the next day he does it all over again. It's like a performance. People drop pennies in his hat for the entertainment. Others get down here early, finish a couple of pictures nice and fast, and then sit by them with the caps out. Some of them don't even do their own drawings. You see the lad over there with the Prince of Wales? I did that for him first thing this morning, and I get a cut of his take, see? Huh? I said, finishing off my bun. Maybe I should look into it. I'm not making any money with what I'm doing at the moment. Do you draw? Donald said. I've painted, I said. I did the backdrop for Fred Carnot's football match sketch. It was supposed to look like a crowd of faces. Ah, oh, well, if you can do faces, my friend, you've got it made. Here. He scrabbled around, collecting together the odd ends of coloured chalk into a tobacco tin, ushering me along to a bare paving slab. Have a go. Oh, no, I should be going, I said. What? Urgent appointment, is it? Go on, give it a try. I picked up a little bit of chalk. What shall I do? I don't know any paintings. You're on the alls, you say? Draw me a comic, then. So I began sketching from memory, gradually working out the techniques as I went, and before long I'd come up with a decent picture of my old friend George Roby, the Prime Minister of Mirth, who was just about the biggest name in Music Hall. There you go. Not bad. Not bad at all, Donald said. Now shade in some background, like a, a fancy red curtain behind him. I did as he suggested, dimly aware that I was being watched, and then my concentration was broken by a metallic clink, and then another. I looked up to see what it was, and a couple of pennies had appeared alongside my knees, and I picked them up, wonderingly. Just pop your cap on the floor, Donald said, and you're away. By dusk, to my utter astonishment, I'd accumulated a couple of shillings, and had arranged to return early the next morning to secure a pitch alongside my new mentor. Over the next few weeks and months, I became a Trafalgar Square regular. My intention in the early days was to keep heading down to the corner to look for stage work, but that gradually went by the board. I could make a surprisingly decent amount of pocket money simply drawing on the pavement, enough to keep body and soul together anyway, and enough so that I could finally give Edith a little for my board, while all that awaited me at the corner, frankly, was humiliation and disappointment. I missed the thrill of being on stage, of course, but it gradually became a more and more distant memory, and anyway, what was I going to do? There was no hope of reviving the Romans from Rome. It would just cost too much money to retrieve the props and pay off Stan's brother, and in any case, I hadn't seen Stan or Ted Leo since our ignominious retreat from Europe. I told myself I was keeping a kind of connection with my previous life, however thin, by making pictures of scenes from the music halls my specialty. I amused myself by doing a drawing of Mary Lloyd, say, and another of Harry Lauder, and then sitting between them with a collecting cup on either side, thus conducting a rudimentary popularity survey of the personalities of comedy. Little Titch always scored highly with his great long boots, as did Roby and the great Marie. Others, I think, might have been disappointed by how little they were recognised, although the fault must partly have been mine. I could never quite capture the duality of Vesta Tilly's Burlington Bertie from Bow, for example, and it was pleasing to discover that no one really recognised my portrait of Sidney Chaplin, although it cost me good money to find that out. My masterpiece, if I say so myself, was a sweeping and detailed representation of the Fred Carnot Company in Mummingbirds. I drew it with Chaplin Jr. as the inebriated swell falling out of the box in such a way that he would be certain to land painfully on his stupid neck. 
Meanwhile, the prestidigious Eter would be enjoying his moment of triumph, as in San Francisco, with the white dove miraculously flying from his hands. I spent most of my time labouring to do justice to his gorgeous assistant, paying attention to every detail of her lovely face and figure. It always brought a healthy clink of coins into my cup, but I only did the drawing every once in a while, because it broke my heart to do it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.